I'd like to explore a little bit and get us into the territory of this balance between the calming, the samatha, as it's traditionally called, the stilling, calming, focusing meditation, which is the ground for all of our practices. Um, We've been using breath, body, maybe sound, sensation, um, to bring our attention to that for the sake of unifying the energies of body, heart and mind within awareness. And awareness suffusing those three streams of our energy, steadying, focusing. So this is one whole territory of the practice. And then balancing that with what's usually and traditionally called, in this culture, vipassana, which is a culture of insight, um, and, and in all Buddhist traditions, which means to see into, see more deeply into the nature of mind, body, feeling, experience of self, experience itself, of phenomena, um, of reality. Um, and traditionally, these two are taught in tandem. They support each other. So they're not completely split in two totally different camps. They actually need, un, they need to inform each other and support each other. The calming and the wisdom, the wise reflection. <clears throat> so, um, I just like to really open this territory of vipassana um, sometimes more popularly named in the suttas as Dhamma Vijaya, which is one of the enlightenment factors, which literally means investigation of Dhammas. Um, and Dharma and Dhammas, they've got two different meanings. They're both connected, of course. There's the Dharma with a big D, um, which is the Dharma, the timeless Dharma. And then there's Dharma teachings. And then there's this word dhammas, usually with a small d. (laughs) Dhammas just means like thing, a thingness, a thingness. You know, how things come together and then there's a manifestation of some sort or other that has particular qualities within every thingness um, that we notice, that we know. The first thing being that we know. (laughs) We know there is something here. Um, So there's awareness there, there's a consciousness there. Um, And there's a sort of form there, and there's a feeling there. Um, There's a perception there, there's a a familiarity, a memory there. There's a maybe cognitive focus there. So all of this is around the thingness of our experience. So what what is these things that we're these dhammas, what is, what is their nature actually? So this is the territory and the realm of, of vipassana, investigation, dhamma vijaya, um, to look into the nature of. Ajahn Chah talked about this in a, in a very simple way as he would about many things. He would say, know and watch your heart, your jitta, heart-mind. 
its, its fundamental nature is pure, unalloyed. But emotions, mental states come to color it. But let your mind be like a tightly woven net to catch what arises, particularly what emotions and feelings and views arise, and investigate them before you react. Which is very useful advice. <laughs> so often we're in the reaction and karma is created. And then we have to live with the effects of that. And so the samatha that we've been doing is so helpful because it slows the wheel down. You know, there is a, a method to the strangeness of this sort of silence and walking around like we're zombies. Um, <clears throat> maybe that's not a good analogy, but... <laughs> But it does look a bit strange. Someone comes into a meditation retreat and, you know, it looks like it's not very useful, you know, it's a bit of a useful, useless endeavor, but actually it's a really profound endeavor. We're slowing down the wheel of reactivity, breaking the chain of reactivity through mindfully one breath, one footstep, one bite of food, and so on. <clears throat> So to catch in our mindfulness, we're catching, and this, so we're catching in our mindfulness, that net of mindfulness to contemplate what has arisen. Is it wholesome? Is it unwholesome? What's its nature? So the first port of call of, and the first activity of mindfulness in many ways is to discern wholesome or unwholesome. That's, you know, what's an intention here, particularly when we become attuned to the flow of karma. You know, that the mind creates, for a large extent, many of the realities then we live, that we live with the repercussions of. Not all of them, of course, it's very complex. We don't create everything. <laughs> but the intentionality and where we place attention and what we give energy to and effort to, that generates a particular pathway and a manifestation, and a sense of self, and a commitment to, and then there are the results. And sometimes we don't have to do that. We don't have to be compelled to go those pathways. But we don't even know that sometimes. We haven't really paused. So the pausing and then being able to put, it's like put the brakes on for a while. You know, put the clutch in. So the engine is still rolling, but we're not engaging it and driving off. And then we just slow that engine down. Let's look at the cogs here, the mechanism here. Intentionality, the sense of I have to, the sense of being compelled to, the sense of I don't know what to. You know, all of the old beliefs and patterns and stories that come up in relationship to what's arisen in this moment. In truth, we often don't really see what's arisen. We're seeing the projections of the mind that have been unexamined. And then we're reacting to those projections. You know, a small example is like, you know, you, you pull up at night, tired, want to go to bed, you're kind of in your usual, just dreamlike thinking mind, pull, up the pull back the bed covers and there's a scorpion there or a big spider, and you go, oh, you have a reaction, 
well, you know, it might be fair enough. You know, you pick that scorpion up, you're going to get, get bit or stung. But that's not the scorpion's fault. <laughs> you know, so uh, you just carefully take that out of the room. But if we're not mindful, we might just, you know, squash that. So what's actually happening there? You know, we're seeing something and we're conditioned through fear. And then we start reacting to the projection of the mind. We're not really in resonance with that creature or that being or that circumstance. We're not really listening in to what's actually here. So we often go through life and we've got these programs that we're running and these systemic programs which are embedded in very powerful ways mind is just running them until they're investigated and then we're reading everything and filtering it through those assumptions and then we're reacting so often we're and then things come to affirm the truth of my rightness <laughs> you know so this is the prison of the mind actually or the conditioned mind our conditioning it's imprisoning to us until we can see through it and break out of those patterns. And there's a different kind of, sometimes radically different kind of space that can open up. So this is the liberating part of the vipassana, the insight, the investigation. And in this realm of investigation, inquiry, contemplation, nothing is a disturbance to us, actually. In the realm of samatha and calm, there's a lot that disturbs us. You know, we can get very, that person is fidgeting, I don't like the way this went, or it's not quite right somehow, this thing in my life, if only I could just meditate it away. You know, so that there can be a subtle sense of, there's a lot of skill in cultivating calm, but there can also be this subtle sense of, not so subtle sense of aversion. And a split that starts to happen between my meditative space, so precious, and life. And the trouble is, like 99% of everything else is life. <laughs> so we set ourselves up as feeling like we are failing often in meditation because we can't hold that space, which actually takes a lot of power and circumstance and conditions to hold that space for us. Silence, group agreement for silence, containment, and so on. Well, you go out onto the freeway, you go to the shops, whatever, that's not on offer. <clears throat> and you know, you can't change the whole world to make you feel happy. If only you could take these people out, that situation out, that trigger out, you know, this is, as Ajahn Charles said, there's two kinds of peace. There's the peace of calm, where we can perhaps hold a calm space, deepen our calm, and yes, that mindfulness will irrigate that calm and steadiness, and we'll know how to return to it more and more quickly in our daily life, but it's fragile too. And then he said there's the peace of wisdom, to wisely reflect on there's disturbance, there's dukkha, there's suffering, I've been triggered whatever's happening. Um, and there's certainly wisdom in finding situations and contexts that are most supportive for us. 
as we grow in strength, grow in our wisdom. That's what a monastery did for me, actually, for 12 years. And retreats, I was very addicted. Many, many retreats. And then I would get very upset very quickly. Walk out and it would kind of disappear very quickly. So there's, there's, there's wisdom to contain and to find skillful abiding, but that's not the end. If we depend on that, I can only be with these people in this space, in this situation, and we've got a very fragile practice in the end of the day. So we also have to develop this wise wisdom and compassion and discernment and you know the, a lot of skills to negotiate the world rooted in wise reflection in what Ajahn Chah would call right view. And that was his main transmission, right understanding. So he would say, like for example, when he saw a senior disciple, he became a senior Western disciple, Ajahn Sumedho, when he was a young novice, first rocked up at the monastery in Thailand, and he's sweeping you know, here's this guy, he's a graduate from some university in America, and he's put, put behind the novices right at the end of the line, and Ajahn Chah just, you know, like, okay, just get on with it. And he just wants to meditate in a heart, says, no, you've got to pour water with everyone, you've got to sweep the leaves, you've got to, you're just going to be normal. You know, Westerners don't want, they want to do a bit special. <laughs> and one of his, West, another Western disciple came, you mentioned him the other day, Ajahn Anando, you know, wants to do all the fasting, all the special ascetic practice, really ratchet up the, you know, the, the will and the breakthrough. So he's telling Ajahn Chah, I think Ajahn Chah goes, that's great, go for it. And so he listens to all this and Ajahn Chah just says, well, you just can't you be normal? You just, just be normal. Just there's enough in the normal day to work with. There's enough dukkha here, you know, you don't have to go and kind of eke it out. <laughs> so anyway, Ajahn Sumedha's sweeping these leaves and he's really upset because it's, I don't know what he's thinking, this is my projection, but maybe he's thinking, this is a waste of time, this isn't the job I should be doing, I should have come all this way, you know, I should be sitting in my special heart and special treatment and samadhi, enlightenment, emptiness after all. And here I'm just sweeping these leaves. And then Ajahn Chah sees, he see this guy's got a lot of dukkha going on. So he comes up to him and, hmm, is that suffering in the leaves? Is it in the broom? Where is it? <laughs> so he gets it. You know, where is, where is this dukkha actually? And yes, there is definitely causes of suffering outside of ourselves, very, very big causes. And it's not that we don't apprehend them and work with them, engage them, but it's very different working from the place of clarity and non-reactivity and insightfulness, much more powerful than just reacting to our projections. You know, to actually then to realize that in this practice we take back where's the actual source of complication and dukkha suffering happening. It's always appearing and beginning in the mind. And there, it's there that we can attend to it. So the Buddha said the heart of his teaching, the, the core reason for his teaching, was to overcome and end dukkha. 
Uh, you think, well, isn't there anything else more exotic and interesting and esoteric on offer? Well, actually, that's a great gift. In fact, in the suttas, he said, if someone offered to beat you for a hundred years every day and then give you this teaching, take that offer. That's how important this teaching is. So, you know, you might feel like we're beating you here, <laughs> but actually, this is a very Rolls-Royce retreat experience, I promise you, compared to many others I've been on. You know, this is like a first-class restaurant down the road. Here we're getting these beautiful meals, and we're like gently fine-tuning, and you know, it can be rougher, I promise you. But there's still enough dukkha. It doesn't have to be big, 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 big dukkha, and even a little bit will do to work with. So he also said, Ajahn Chah, he said, you know, you guys, when he first came in the 1970s to, a few times he came to the West, once, a couple of times to UK, which is when I first met him, my great good fortune. And then he came to America, to IMS, which we just started. And so he was looking at this, all these Westerners sitting in these retreats and, you know, people from America and... UK people, and he's like, hmm, interested, interested. And then he said, you know, you guys are like people that have a really good lawyer. He said, you, you get into trouble and you call your lawyer. He said, you get into trouble and you come on retreat. He said, what you really need to know is what gets you into trouble in the first place <laughs> before you call your lawyer. Yeah, so... So it's important to have a probably, if something's good lawyer, it can really help. It's important to go on retreat. But what gets us into trouble? Yeah, so this is, what, this is the job of vipassana, to start exploring these hindrances that were so beautifully, so clearly, that whole territory, the spell. I love that. I never heard that explanation of Nivarana, uh, that Nisha brought into the room. And it really makes a lot of sense for the word hindrance. Well, every day they're operating. So every day we have an opportunity. So if we just go now, just now, as Nisha was saying, you know, it, it takes all of us a while, she was saying, like, to get the message that it's not just about getting calmer, 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 and then one day you explode in this enlightenment bliss. And you float away. That's what I thought it was for years. I'd do these retreats, you know, these real workout retreats. I'd sit there and just like not move. And I broke my knee. I did all sorts of crazy, you know, just, I'd just keep going, you know. And one day I'll just explode in this bliss, cosmic bliss. And it will all be over. And then I'll just float above it all on this lovely cloud and... You know, so I had that kind of an idea. And man, did I come crashing off that cloud when I joined a monastery. It was a real sort of workout camp. You know, up, you know, living with people I didn't really like, irritating people, and this work schedule. And we had this guy that had been in the work camps of Siberia that was our workmaster <laughs> from the Second World War. And he would like, I mean, he was, you know, building a road, we're going to build this road, and be like, out there at five in the morning, throwing rocks around, and 
one freaking terrible meal, because in those early days we didn't have a lot of support, going to pick nettles, boiling up them, white rice and nettles, and I'm exaggerating. A little bit, a little bit. There was, you know, we also had beautiful Thaidanas that would come, these beautiful meals and these devotees. And, but, you know, and I can't stand, you know, I'd sort of sharing the room with a nun that, very, very sweet now, but she, she was a little bit batty. I hope she doesn't mind me saying she's passed over in deep respects, but she was sort of like flaffing around, like dispensing homeopathic remedies to everyone and anyone, but would be spent all day doing it and into the early hours of the morning I'd be sharing this room. And so sleep is very, very important when you're a monastic. You don't get enough of it ever. So I'd be like laying there like, oh, yeah, thank God that day's ended. I'd just catch a bit of sleep and then I'd fall asleep and then about half past 12, night, the room would go, this door was very creaky, this old little cottage we live in. And then she'd come in, bing, light would go on, she'd flapping around and man, the, I always got really murderous. I was a really murderous, like, I mean, and then I'd be waiting in the bell, I'd just like go to sleep maybe three o'clock in the morning, bang, bell, and I, you know, it's like, I, where's my cloud? <laughs> where's my cloud gone? You know, so, and that went on for years, until one day I got the message, you know, one day I got to such a state, I thought, either I'm going to burn this monastery down, <laughs> I'm going to run away, and at that point, I didn't even know where I'd run to anymore because I'd run out of options. Or I'm going to get the message. Okay, guess get the message, Tanisara, get the message. Be mindful. <laughs> Be mindful or suffer. So I just was mindful, and I just took that energy, this raw rage and anger and you know, righteous indignation. <laughs> how could they? I don't even know who they were anymore, but how could they? <laughs> Ruining my meditation. And I just like sat there and it was so painful. I just thought this is where war starts. It was such a profound insight for me. It's just this is war. And I have to really accept this energy, you know. I mean, it sounds a bit dramatic, but I felt like like the Christ on the cross. You know, just give it to me now. I'm just take it all on. <laughs> That's you know, when monastic, you get a little inflated occasionally. <laughs> so, anyway, so but I got I did you know, and I could feel it as I started to take back the anger in my mind, the pain of it. It started to chemically, with that mindful awareness, it's like chemically transmute start to alchemically transmute. So that energy with awareness, and then I did have, you know, to give myself credit, I know in Britain we really underplay ourselves um, in humor. Um, so if you say I'm a really terrible person socially, someone will go, oh, that's, that's she's, she's really cool, you know, she's really cool. If you go, I'm really great, I can do this, they're like, mm, you know about you. <laughs> It kind of works a little bit the opposite in America. <laughs> Which took me a while to figure out. So, you know, I'm great. <laughs> but anyway, so as I, you know, as I just like stayed with this, this dukkha, 
And just through feeling that, feeling that, you feel that chemically changing the heart. And I felt this compassion. You know, it wasn't the end of the problem or the struggle, but I felt that I found the path. I found the middle way, in a way, between just trying to be calm and push things away, trying to control it all, uh, trying to avoid, trying to use meditation to get out the mess. And I realized the mess was the point. I realized the disturbance was the, the edge of practice, not, not a personal failing. And then I understood what Ajahn Chah was about, really, what his main emphasis was. I remember I had a, a very dear friend in this community we used to live in before I went to the monastery meditation community. And he went to Thailand, this Dutch guy, and see Ajahn Chah. And by the time he arrived from Bangkok up into the northeast, he'd gotten sick. He'd kind of gotten some sickness. And he felt like he was going to throw up. But he went to see Ajahn Chah and he felt really bad. And he, he was kneeling down, talking. Ajahn Chah could see he wasn't very well. And, um, you know, like for us now, we're trained very much in, in our contemporary culture. Go, what can I get you? What do you need? Please go and rest. Please take all what you need. Let's go and get, you know, that's the kind of way. And it's, it's appropriate to some degree. Obviously, you need a lot of metta kindness here. Ajahn Chah didn't do any of that. He just spoke and spoke this Dharma talk that went on and on and on. And my friend said he just was in such a state. And then he got it. He said, this is dukkha. He just got, this is the body in a state of dukkha. And he said the dukkha didn't stop, but something completely shifted in his relationship to it. And at that point, Ajahn Chah stopped. Okay, go. <laughs> And sometimes he would also say the practice, this practice at this level doesn't always begin until we can't go up, we can't go down, we can't go to the side. We can't control the circumstance. We can't shift the furniture. You know, in our culture, we've developed a billion dollar industry of shifting the furniture to keep us free from dukkha. And it's created even more, even more alienation, even more destruction of all the resources we're using. The sorry story of where we are at, you know. So, you know, as is said, rather than try and cover the whole planet with vegan leather, <laughs> rather just cover the soles of the shoes that you're walking on. Rather than try and change the whole world, get everyone lined up with our agenda, it's not going to happen. There's always going to be ignorance. That's just how it is. That's the deal. We live in a dualistic plane. There's light and shadow and a play between them. Rather than come to terms with this deep initiation, because that's really what it is through the journey of the experience of unsatisfactoriness, of dukkha, and start to use this, so we use a vipassana, to investigate what's happening here. And is this really even suffering? And why am I just, you know, suffer, suffer, suffer? Let me just have some agency. There's a very different approach to unconscious suffering, just suffer, and consciously engaging this experience 
of what is disturbing me. And so we're slowing that down and looking. What are the elements in this experience? There's a moment of feeling. First of all, the place it hits us is what we feel. And this is with a very good reason why this is the whole territory unto itself in the second foundation of mindfulness, in so many places, the relationship to Vedana. And, you know, we feel a lot of feelings that are very difficult to be with. And we create a lot of reactivity around what's felt. And we can go with mindfulness, feeling the feeling in the feeling. It just feels, is this pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And even if it's unpleasant, what is that actually? So this is inquiry, and this is the power then of the calm and the steadiness. We take that same attention that we've brought to the breath, and you can take that to what's experienced, what's felt in the body, and hold the tension there, breathe there too, by all means. And it starts to transmute. There's a, the alchemical changes that happen within the sphere of awareness, focused awareness touching into dukkha. What is this mind state? These thought patterns, these dongas of the heart. Can't stand it, got to change it, look what they're doing. You know, the addiction that we have in a way to the, to the suffering mind, the complexity making mind. This is a thought. You know, there's the insight, the thinking, thinking, worrying, planning, you know, parts of the technique of vipassana. It's a mind in this configuration. So we're getting to know that configuration rather than become that configuration. As Master Shinwa would say, watching the state turn rather than being turned by the state. Watching the weather turn, watching these states of mind, these feelings, these processes, some of them very long. One good thing is that they all arise and pass. It can be a painful thing sometimes, but one thing you can guarantee, whatever it is, it will pass. You know, so we see that more. And even in the moment of what seems to be, this is not going to pass. This has been here forever. But even if you start to look in the density of what seems to be so constricted, it's already changing by the very power of your attention. It's already not what you thought it was, exactly. It's not what you framed it as or what you assumed it to be, neither yourself or others or this world. So know and watch your heart. It is pure, but emotions come to color it. Let your mind be like a tightly woven net to catch emotions and feelings that come and investigate them before you react.
So to our groups or to the notice board <laughs> to read where your group or your meeting will be. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.